Hello, Answer Me This listeners. Ollie here. Happy New Year. Uh, No, this isn't a new episode of Answer Me This, just to kill that dreamstone dead. But who knows? You know, one day, do keep following this feed, won't you? Uh, What this is, is a reminder that I do a daily show these days, which, as an Answer Me This fan, you will probably enjoy. It's called Today in History with the Retrospectors. And not to show my workings, but um, when Answer Me This ended, I was like, uh, how, how can I continue to live this lifestyle of recording for a couple of hours per week with two mates on a variety of bizarre trivia topics. And from that idea, today in history with the retrospectors bloomed. It is essentially me taking the same tone that I used to on Answer Me This, with a little less profanity and a little more research, uh, but just chopped into daily 10-minute episodes instead of being constructed as an hour-long entertainment. There are now over 400 editions of Today in History with the Retrospectors for you to check out on our feed, which, as you know, is um, incredibly more than Helen and Martin and I ever did of Answer Me This in 14 years. So that's weird. Um, But please do check us out. You can click the links in the show notes to follow us in your podcast app of choice, or you can search for Today in History with the Retrospectors wherever you get your podcasts. We will be bringing you a new slice of factual entertainment on that show every weekday in 2023. You will learn something, you will laugh. Make us your New Year's resolution. Just give me 10 minutes a day. That's all I'm asking for. Uh, But you don't have to go anywhere because here is proof of concept. A couple of episodes for you to sample right now. You are about to hear about the day in history that 90s icon Mr Blobby was created and the day in history that probably saw the invention of the hamburger. My co-hosts are Rebecca Messina and Arian McNichol. I hope you enjoy these two 10-minute tasters. Take it away, voiceover man. It's July 4th, 1891, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Arian, Rebecca and Ali, the Retrospectors. If you had been a guest at Oscar Bilby's 4th of July party at his ranch just outside Tulsa, Oklahoma on this day, you would have been lucky enough to enjoy delicious Angus beef burgers served on homemade buns. So far, so 4th of July. But what made this occasion special is that this is the first hamburger in history, maybe. That maybe yeah. is doing a lot of work in that sentence. <laughs> yeah. I am a I am a Bilby partisan and I will take you all on. I know it's the 4th of July and I know you're excited to celebrate the origin of the burger, but yeah, let's just put a heavy <laughs> disclaimer at the top of this. The legitimacy of this date that we're celebrating all comes down to whether or not you think a hamburger is a hamburger only when it's served on a bun. The funny thing about <laughs> it is that it's got this murky and hugely disputed history with American families, rival claims backed by, honestly, everything from like state legislatures' edicts to personal <laughs> affidavits and massive festivals that get mounted in different cities across the states, which is all particularly funny for a product whose name pays homage to the German city of Hamburg. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's probably one of the more contested origin stories but to be fair, who would have thought of recording the moment they first ate a beef patty inside a bread roll? <laughs> and as you touched on, Ollie, how do you define the first? Does it have to be a bun? Does it have to be called a hamburger? You know, mushed up meat and bread are food staples in many, if not most, cultures around the world. Yeah, it's never called that on the menu, though, is it? 
<laughs> not not very appetite wetting. <laughs> <laughs> so meat and bread will obviously have been eaten together in various ways. You only have to look at our meatball episode to know <sighs> that beef patties are everywhere in all times. Like you could say that the groundwork for a hamburger was laid when the first human ate the first cow. And, you, you know, God knows when that was. <laughs> or with the domestication of cattle, see Mesopotamia around 10,000 years ago. But actually, probably at least it's more salient to jump ahead to kind of the 1800s when beef comes to the US with German immigrants. Yes, because what we do know, regardless of who in America popularised it, um, the reason that it was in America at all was because German immigrants were in America. Steak Hamburg originated in Hamburg and it was New York street sellers trying to cater to German sailors, basically, who started selling ground-up mints Uh, at some point in the 19th century and created the notion of steak Hamburg as a German-American dish. Mm. Now, before we get to the hamburger, there's a definite link, isn't there, from Germany to the States that brings us to this point. Yeah, the connection between the food and the city isn't 100% clear, although it's possible that it arrived in Germany via Russia as a form of steak tartare. And that theory is bolstered by the fact that early hamburger steaks in the US were often served either raw or rare, and they came with a raw egg on top of them, like steak tartare. The first reference in English to Hamburg sausage came in the mid-18th century. By the mid-19th century, there had become hamburger steak, and both recipes are recognisable to us as a basic burger patty with onions and various seasonings. This, the early one still has that weird medieval thing where they've put like cinnamon and clove and stuff in it, but by <laughs> the 1800s, we had reached a recognisable modern burger patty. And by the mid-1800s, then, the growth of home grinders it was Uh, attributed as being one of the things that was responsible for the spread of hamburgers because I guess this was the opportunity to take meat home in various different forms and then mush it to your own liking in your own uh, kitchen. Um, But that in conjunction with this explosion of readily available beef in America is yet another one of these sort of origin points. Yes, so from 1871, you could buy Hamburg beefsteak on the breakfast and supper menu of the Clipper restaurant at 311-313 Pacific Street in San Fernando, California. If you did go and you had 10 cents, you could buy a burger, but also mutton chops, pig's feet in batter, stewed veal, pig's head, calf tongue and stewed kidneys. I'll take the burger. (laughs) Yeah, take the burger. Even if everything else on the menu is like one pence. (laughs) (laughs) Can I take you back to this particular 4th of July in 1891? You may. I'll give you the Bilby version. Yes. And for this, we have to thank author Michael Wallace and a 1995 article he wrote about his research into the origins of the burger for Oklahoma Today magazine. (laughs) So... Oscar Bilby and his wife had been living on their ranch outside of Tulsa for about seven years when they threw this, their first 4th of July party. Now, according to their grandson, Harold, Oscar himself told him that he had hand-forged his own iron grill, ground his own Angus beef patties, grilled them over hickory wood, while his wife, Fanny, made her secret recipe buns. Yeah, now, Fanny's buns are an important part (laughs) of this story because, as I say, we've already got dates that, that precede this. If you want to see that original grill, you actually can, because the other thing that Oscar Bilby made was his own root beer. Now, he didn't claim to have invented it. It was first (laughs) sold 50 years previously, but it was common for farmers to make their own root beer. And he was the first to put it between buns. (laughs) (laughs) Grandma funny stuck it right between her (laughs) buns. But 
his root beer was what actually took off rather than the burgers. And there's still a roadside store in Tulsa that sells his root beer and burgers, still operated by the Bilby family. And apparently at this place, which is called Weber's, they claim to still use that original 1891 homemade grill, but I would take it with a grain of salt because they do also claim that Frank and Jesse James were early adopters of their <laughs> great-grandfather's root beer. Well, Harold also says, in answer to the question, did he definitely invent the burger? There's not even a trace of doubt in my mind. My grandpa invented the hamburger on a bun right here in what became Oklahoma. And if anybody wants to say different, then let them prove otherwise. And I'm like, you can't just put the onus of proof on someone else. Especially when, by definition, they would be dead. Well, like, long quite. dead <laughs> yeah. if they had any contrary evidence. Um, so, all right, burger on a bun, maybe was invented by Oscar Bilby. But burger between two pieces of bread, I mean, i.e. Hamburg steak between two pieces of bread, therefore a burger. There is quite a well-established claim on that from 1885. Uh, so six years ahead of this, which is 15-year-old as he was then, Charlie Nagreen of Seymour, Wisconsin, who was selling meatballs at the Outagamie County Fair. And uh, people were burning their hands... <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, I know he was 15 and I know this was 1885 and this was all new, but seriously. It's coming off a grill, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I've got everything. I've got the grill. I've got the meat. Here you are. I mean, yeah. Didn't think to have some kind of mechanic that people could walk around the fair eating it on. So people were burning their hands and saying, I don't want your meatball. You're hurting me. And then he went to, in the absence of a grandma Fanny on site, went to the bakery stall across the way, who were also at the state also fair. Also spluttering because they had nothing. Nothing inside their bread, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and said, you've got the perfect combination here, guys. I've got the filling, you've got the bread. And he called this thing the hamburger. He was the first to call it a hamburger. He became known as Hamburger Charlie. He returned to sell hamburgers at the fair every year until his death in 1951. Um, he would apparently entertain the crowds with a guitar and mouth organ. And his jingle, hamburgers, hamburgers, hamburgers hot, onions in the middle, pickle on top, makes your lips go flippity flop and not your hands <laughs> because we've got <laughs> no bread around it your hands. Yeah. <laughs> well the other main claimant to the title of inventor of the hamburger is a guy called fletcher davis who was nicknamed uncle dave he sold hamburger sandwiches again between two pieces of bread mm -hmm. at the 1904 world's fair in st louis always which the by the way fair. always was fair that's also credited with introducing ice cream cones, hot dogs in buns, and candy floss to the mainstream. But he claimed he'd been selling them in his hometown of Athens, Texas since the 1880s. And this prompted Oklahoma Governor Frank Keating to get involved. On the 12th of April, 1995, he made an official proclamation declaring Tulsa the real birthplace of the hamburger. And the proclamation opens... Whereas scurrilous rumours have credited Athens, Texas as the birthplace of the hamburger, which I think is just such a grandiose opening. <laughs> so great. And he goes on to address this very issue that we have been discussing as well. He says, Although someone in Athens in the 1860s may have placed cooked ground beef between two slices of bread, this minor accomplishment can in no way be regarded equal to what comes on a bun accompanied by such delight as pickles, onions, lettuce, tomato, cheese, and in some cases, special sauce. <laughs> And there was a counter-proclamation by Wisconsin, uh, whose legislature uh, declared that Seymour, Wisconsin, was the home of Hamburger, and that's why it's right to hold all the festivals and celebrations in their yeah. town. I mean, the thing that I find most interesting and sort of ironic about all of this is, as we've said, what is sort of beyond doubt is that the origins of it were in Hamburg, Germany, but it had become such an American thing, the Hamburger, that by World War II, troops in the States and from the States 
were given hamburgers on army bases, etc., as their sustenance because it was an all-American food that they all enjoyed. Well, they were given hamburgers, but that's probably not the name they're being served under. They were one of the many German food items that underwent a rebranding during World War II. You may have heard of um, sauerkraut being renamed Liberty Cabbage. Well, much in the same vein, hamburgers were renamed Liberty Steaks. Which is hilarious, isn't it? And, and like a predecessor of what happened in our lifetime, which was that short-lived attempt to call French fries Freedom Fries when France wouldn't evade <laughs> Iraq. <laughs> I mean, you had the option to call them beef burgers right there. I, you know, <laughs> kids always find it super confusing that, like, a hamburger is not made of ham. Doesn't have ham in it, yes. Why not just clear that up from the start? <laughs> <laughs> It's October 24th, 1992, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. A lot of alcohol and five minutes doodling is how TV producer Michael Lego describes the day he created one of British TV's most beloved characters, who made his BBC One debut today in history in 1992, the Google-eyed, yellow and pink, perma-grinning, foam-bodied suit of chaos known as Mr Blobby. (laughs) And I think he is now remembered best as the free-floating agent of chaos, but he was created for a specific purpose, which was for a segment on Noel's House Party, which was the leading light entertainment programme of the time. It had several regular features that usually involved viewers or celebrities taking part in challenges or being the victims of good-natured pranks. And one of these was a celeb pranking segment called Gotcha, which involved Noel Edmonds in various disguises, upsetting celebrities who didn't realise that they were being filmed, etc. And so what had happened was that Michael Legger, the aforementioned creator of Mr Blobby, had realised that Noel couldn't just keep turning up places because the celebrities would inevitably become very suspicious. So they would create a costume for him and they sketched out this horrifying... We can't even describe it. If you don't, if you've never seen Mr Blobby, just look him up. We can't do justice <laughs> to him. And so then they set Blobby loose, pranking celebrities. And he was almost a victim of his own success because the idea was that the celebrities wouldn't know that they weren't encountering a character on a new kids TV show to whom they were meant to explain what their line of work was and then what made it funny. I never watched it. You guys lived through this. Um, But apparently what made it funny was that Mr. Blobby would then go about kind of trashing the segment and falling over and generally sort of smashing up the stage and so on. And that was quite funny because it was particularly designed to needle the celebrities in question. But As soon as it started airing, then obviously the surprise couldn't be mounted on new celebrities because they would have seen Mr Blobby go out on Britain's most popular TV show, so they would have known what to expect. Yeah, so the expected run of Mr Blobby was for this series of eight gotchas, they called them, which is when they did the stings on celebrities and humiliated them by getting them involved in nefarious projects and then the mask comes off and ho-ho, it's Noel Edmonds under there. Except it wasn't, we'll get on to that. But the popularity of the character with the British public, was so instant and so immense that Mr Blobby ended up being a regular fixture on Noel's house party and then his... I, I was I was about to say tentacles and then I nearly corrected myself <laughs> because he doesn't have tentacles, but he kind of does. Like, it fits. Don't you see a Blobby tentacle? Can't you pink <laughs> yeah, and yellow? Totally. So I'm going to say anyway, his tentacles then sort of went into areas of British life hitherto untouched <laughs> by Saturday evening mascots. <laughs> but if you watch the original series of gotchas and in fact i've just sat through the first one which was a sting on wayne sleep the ballet dancer and and choreographer 
And it's really funny. <laughs> it is the chaos and it is the destruction. But it's also because it's a parody of children's television, mm. which wouldn't be very clever if it was a late night sketch show. But this was going out on what was effectively children's television. So it's inviting the audience to laugh at itself. It's actually quite a layered joke that's going on. You're laughing at the celebrity for being humiliated for thinking it's genuine. You're laughing at the cleverness of how they've parodied children's television. And you're laughing at the absolute clowning and destruction of this farcical beast going around destroying everything. And also, at the time when these gotcha segments were going out, our access as viewers to celebrities was a lot more managed than it is now with social media. So seeing celebs get pranked mm. was much funnier in the 90s than it is now for some mm. reason. You, know, you didn't see celebrities off, so watching them get flustered and frustrated as blobby casually wrecked havoc around them was an irresistible sight to millions of people i watched all of them many times because i was the proud owner of the blobby vhs tape it, went on, it became the bbc's biggest selling tape at the time so one of the proud owners then the yes I, one of many it was it combined the gotcha clips with new material totaling 71 glorious minutes of blobby action do you know i can understand how it could work it's like in my imagination of it, it's like a proto kind of Sasha Baron Cohen Ali G setup <laughs> where you've got this person who is pretending to have a, a naivety about them, but they're exposing things about their interviewee or subject by virtue of the chaos that they're creating. Although in the case of Ali G, it was wit rather than physical comedy. But think about how <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen actually has blurred those lines afterwards, you know, with Bruno True. sort of jumping on top of each other and waving his bum in their face. Yep. That's Mr. Blobby. <laughs> uh, that is exactly that. Like you put them in a situation where they're in a room with Mr. Blobby and then he jumps on top of them. Yeah. <laughs> and also it's exactly the same thing of that tension of someone, someone who's used to being on camera knowing that they're on camera even though they think because the setup is that they're making an episode or it's a pilot and it's not being broadcast right now they're aware there's cameras on them so they're controlling their image whilst this enormous pink thing is rolling around <laughs> on top of their face but also, but also <laughs> so I can get why it works at that stage but it also does seem like there's a very obvious reason why this backlash emerged so quickly which is that blobby the has the bobby lash yeah because <laughs> because blobby has no purpose to serve you know once you make a good point <laughs> but wait 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 don't do let's not do the fall of blobby let's do the rise the we're unstoppable rise we're in blobby heyday right, yeah. it, I think I, we can probably agree that the peak came when he had the Christmas number one single of 1993 his self-titled debut single <laughs> top the charts albeit in a pretty crap field number two was Babe by Take That so it's not like there was some great Christmassy contender <laughs> but there's I think a couple of things behind the success of Blobby in this period and one is the anti-establishment uh, sentiment that's being expressed by buying the Mr Blobby tape and sending it to number one at Christmas and stopping Take That Get to number one. The British public knew it was rubbish because that was the joke. The joke was he's a parody of bad children's television. There is just this thing in the British psyche of you know that this is someone who literally smashes things up and that's funny to make it a pinnacle. So there's that going on. But then I think the other thing that's going on, I really wouldn't undermine this, is the incredible comic performance of Barry Killaby, who is the man inside the suit. Mm -hmm. um, I said earlier that it's not Noel inside the suit. It obviously was when he sprang the celebrities and took the hat off. But that was literally for the gotcha shot. It wasn't Noel Edmonds doing the clowning around. It was a Shakespearean actor called Barry Killaby, um, who was method... 
I mean, I've spoken to people who worked with Blobby, and when you were working with Blobby, you had to speak to him as Blobby, not as Barry. Barry didn't exist. And he's, he took it very seriously and ever since has never done an interview about it. Like, he's had enough of it now. He doesn't play Blobby anymore. It's played by a man called Paul Denson these days. But the point is, Barry Killaby's physical performance in some of the classic moments from Noel's House Party, have a look on YouTube at Mr. Blobby's Not Coming to New York, which was the moment <laughs> okay. where they told Blobby that he wasn't going to come on the trip with the show to New York City. And he does the entire routine of a basically two-year-old's temper tantrum going up and down the stairs of the mansion in Crinkly Bottom. And it <laughs> is note-perfect clowning, despite the fact he is wearing a seven-foot foam costume. It's incredible. It's just and like... I think people did recognise that this was one of the great comedy performances <laughs> of the 90s. Genuinely, really funny. Because also that's the other thing about watching Noel's House Party is you're watching at home, but there's like an audience of 600 people. There was a huge studio show and it thrived off the reaction of the audience in real time. Right. And again, that performance, you could you could feel the, the audience is still when Mr. Blobby makes a cameo appearance, as he has done on sort of Channel 4 panel shows and Loose Women and stuff like that. You can hear a live <laughs> audience scream with laughter when he enters the room. I mean, I have to say, watching TV as a child in the 90s, was there was always a vague dread that Mr. Blobby <laughs> would randomly turn up on the show you were watching. You were never yeah. fully safe from a Blobby Cameo. Yeah, I think there was a point at which his success was so mainstreamed, there was no irony to it anymore. It was just the slapstick and it faded somewhat. I know that seems ridiculous when you talk about a show with 16 million viewers, but I think people did think they were in on a joke with Blobby. And then he became too big for his own pink and yellow boots. <laughs> but I feel like the wave of 90s nostalgia that we've had for the last 10 years plus means Blobby has a place yeah. in our hearts and will continue. And I would not be surprised given the YouTubeability of what he does, if Blobby is still with us in 20 years' time. <laughs> well, maybe that too-big-for-his-boots-ness is what contributed to the scandals that unfolded in 1994, including you just a want to moment... Blobby when he's down, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm not but... liking this anti-Blobby attitude no. I'm hearing. Okay, well, yeah. no, it gives you the opportunity to defend him. Well, but anyway, he... So... <laughs> All well, he wants to do is bring joy to people. I tell, you, I tell you a thing that he did to Heidi O'Callaghan at her sixth birthday party at Caesar's <laughs> Well, how Luton. dark is this going to get? <laughs> Not too dark. He, he, uh, Operation threw... Blobby, they called it. <laughs> it's all come to light recently. <laughs> he threw her cake on the floor and had a massive fight with her dad, which... <laughs> Is definitely blobby out of control. He's not. He's not having fun times I'm at sorry. that stage. If you ask Mr. Blobby to cameo at your six-year-old daughter's birthday party, mm-hmm. she's going to have her th- cake what? thrown on the floor. The act is dropping the cake. That's what Mr. Blobby does. Why, why would she like Mr. Blobby if he wasn't going to come and drop the cake? That's all he does. He comes and goes blobby, 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 and knocks shit over. And with that. This taster edition of Today in History with the Retrospectors has concluded. Did you enjoy it? I thought you would. Uh, Please do follow us now wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Today in History with the Retrospectors on your podcast app of choice uh, or follow the links in the show notes. Bye.